Hello, my name is Vivian Parry. I'm a science writer and broadcaster. Now, I've interviewed hundreds of patients with unusual or rare health conditions, and I've always been struck by how isolating it is to have one of these sorts of problems. How do you find someone like you to talk to? But there's the same sort of issue for doctors too, because if you're a doctor coming across a rare problem for the first time, how do you learn from other professionals' experiences or know what's likely to be important to your patient in managing their disease? Well, we hope to put some of that right with this series of podcasts focused on a rare endocrine disease called hypoparathyroidism. We're going to call it hypopara for short, which causes a range of chronic health problems. There'll be four podcasts in this series, and I need to tell you that they've been produced and funded by Takeda and are available to the public for information purposes only. They should not be used for diagnosis or for treating health problems or disease. They're not intended to substitute for consultation with a healthcare provider, so please consult your own health professional for further advice. The impact of the symptoms of hyperpara described in this podcast are based on a single person's experience and perspective of living with a condition described in their own words. Not all people living with a condition will experience the same symptoms. Having said that, Let's begin our first podcast, which concentrates on the impact of the disease. And I'm delighted to welcome our patient, Fiona, who's been living with chronic hyperpara since being diagnosed in 2003, and endocrinologist and specialist, Dr. Bilizikin. Dr. Bilizikin, let's turn to you first, and we'll start with some basics. Can you explain what hypoparathyroidism is? Hypoparathyroidism is a condition in which the four parathyroid glands that are in, located in the neck are either no longer there or have become uh, dysfunctional or inactive. The consequences of no parathyroid hormone are that patients with this disorder have a low serum or blood calcium and a high blood phosphorus. And how many people are affected by hypopara? Hypoparathyroidism is a rare disease. In general, the incidence of hypoparathyroidism worldwide is somewhere between 22 and 37 per 100,000 in the population. Uh, let me give you a specific figure. In the United States, estimates place the number of patients with hypoparathyroidism at somewhere between 60 and 80,000. So can you tell me how important is calcium? Calcium is very important. Uh, there isn't a cell in the body that doesn't need calcium for its normal functioning. Uh, one can then imagine um, readily that uh, patients with hypoparathyroidism uh, conceivably could have all organ systems affected by the uh, abnormality that is defined by this disease. Let's talk now about how this disease impacts patients. What are the main effects for a patient? The first uh, impact of a patient who develops hypoparathyroidism are symptoms of a low blood calcium. And one of the organ systems that is particularly sensitive to a low blood calcium is what we call the neuromuscular system. The neuromuscular system becomes irritable, 
And that is manifested by uh, symptoms that the patient will uh, uh, observe in herself. And when I use the term herself, 75% of patients with hypoparathyroidism will be women. So they will observe um, what we call paresthesias or pins and needles of their toes, of their fingers. They'll notice uh, numbness around their mouth. Uh, they'll notice twitching uh, because the muscles become irritable. So the muscles of the arms or legs will be twitching spontaneously. These are the first signs of hypoparathyroidism that the patient will demonstrate or recognize. But then it can become worse uh, because, as I mentioned, other systems uh, that depend on a normal calcium can be affected. For example, just our breathing in and out, the trachea and the bronchioles all uh, will become irritable. They will become constricting, and this can lead to uh, an asthma attack. At least it will be perceived as an asthma attack. Uh, where patients are having trouble breathing. And at its worst, uh, patients can present with a seizure because the brain, again, is very sensitive to blood calcium. So there's a spectrum of cl initial clinical manifestations, anywhere from just the simple pins and needles to a life-threatening uh, bronchospasm or seizure. People with hyperpara also complain of cognitive issues, changes in mood, difficulty in concentration. Can you tell me a bit more about that? This is one of the first uh, complaints that patients will present uh, to me. Uh, they uh, notice in themselves uh, a decline in their ability to just think about the things they usually think about. Uh, a term that uh, patients often will offer in a spontaneous way is brain fog which is a very interesting descriptor, a sense that you're not uh, thinking as clearly or as acutely as you used to. Uh, this is a very important complaint that is not always appreciated fully by uh, us practitioners, but clearly perceived uh, as a real problem among patients with hypoparathyroidism. And presumably that means that many patients with this condition can't work or can only work a limited amount. That is true. Uh, I have many patients who <clears throat> are not able uh, to work uh, at all. They used to be gainfully employed, and because of the uh, clinical symptoms of hypoparathyroidism, this brain fog I described, the general reduction in quality of life, these patients... Uh, work uh, less often, and some patients cannot work at all. And presumably, if there's a very low calcium level, then people with this condition are having to take uh, calcium uh, tablets all the time to try and get their calcium levels up. When we speak about a burden of illness as it relates to hypoparathyroidism, I use the term pill burden, meaning that patients uh, have to take a lot of calcium, and that comes in the form of pills. They also have to take vitamin D, which comes in the form of pills. And this pill burden can be enormous. You're describing a really complex condition. I want to turn to Fiona now to get her view, the patient's view of hyperpara. Fiona, how has it affected you personally in terms of both physical and cognitive symptoms? Having chronic hyperpara has had a significant impact on my life. 
Um, I have a long list of physical and cognitive symptoms that affect me um, and prevent me from having what I would consider to feel normal and have a normal life. Some of the physical symptoms that I experience are paresthesia, which is tingling off the fingers and toes, my nose, my mouth. Um, I get cramping, cramping of my legs, my upper back. Um, sometimes I get it in my hands, but not very often. I also can get numbness in my hands and my feet. The one big debilitating symptom for me is the fatigue. Um, and as the years has passed, I think it's got worse as I've got older as well. And I'm a mother as well, which adds to the um, equation. I used to be very, very fit and active. And now I can barely manage to walk without calcium levels dipping or getting some bone pain. So it's a constant fight between trying to keep yourself well and um, battling against this fatigue and yet trying to have some sort of a normal life as well. And what about the brain fog that Dr. Bilizikin was describing? I mean, tell me how you experience that and what it is. Brain fog is getting up in the morning and having to think, right, I've got to do this, then I've got to go that. And sometimes you've got to actually write it all out. I can't go into a shop and think, you know, you go into a shop with five items in your head. I've got to get milk, sugar, bread. I have to actually write all of those down. I cannot actually remember all of those items. Brain fog is just that lack and that clarity in your mind that there's always just a fog over everything stopping you from remembering things. But also um, it affects my ability sometimes to converse. Sometimes I get my, my words jumbled up a little bit and my work colleagues actually know. They'll say to me, your calcium's off. You need to get your bloods done. Sometimes I'll get my sentence muddled up a little bit. That all is a part of brain fog for me. Now that's an extraordinary list of symptoms, but what's the one that has the most impact for you? It's very, very hard to pinpoint one, um, but I would have to say it's the brain fog. It's that not having clarity, being reliant on external aids like post-it notes, notebooks. I always have to keep a notebook in my handbag. Um, Followed closely by fatigue. If those two symptoms were gone, I think I could manage all of the other things a little bit better. I've been thinking about that. Dr. Bulazikin mentioned the impact of hyperpower on, on work and other areas of patients' lives. How has it affected you in that regard? Are you able to work? Work is particularly tough. Um, I work in a very, very demanding job. Um, and the demands that it puts, particularly on my cognitive function, I really, really struggle with sometimes. So as a result, I've had to reduce my hours at work to try and compensate for this and it has made a huge difference. Luckily, my work colleagues and are very, very supportive to me and very in tune with the symptoms that I experience. And I feel very lucky for that. Most people that have hyper don't have that support. How about the wider impact on your family? Hyper has had a huge effect on my family. My children know no different, but my husband knew me before we... I got hyperpara. So while it's been a journey for me, it's also been a journey for him and it's not been a nice journey for him. In terms of the children, they don't know any different. I've always had hyperpara um, to them, but um, they know it's all about calcium and mommy can't do this and mommy can't do that. And that's awful that um, you're 
small children can't go to the park someday because mommy isn't well or that mommy has promised to bring them somewhere that they've been looking forward to and on the, that given day I'm not able to go. It's um, it's not nice and it, I, I feel, I really, really feel for them and it's not nice for them to have to experience that either because they've got a level of anxiety around it as well. They've seen me go to hospital in an ambulance. Um, they've I've been in hospital nights that... that They've woke up and I'm not there. So they have a little bit of anxiety around where I am, what I'm doing, how I am. And presumably, because this is such a rare condition that your friends have probably never heard of, it must be really difficult to talk to them about it. Yeah. My friends just don't get it. They know that I need calcium and that's pretty much it. Um, Again, most of my friends that are in my life, I have known all my life before I had a hypopara. So I suppose they don't have any long-term illnesses themselves, so they can't identify with me. And that's really, really hard. So I try and keep my hypopara life very separate from them and try and be as normal as I can be with my group of friends. And also I want to try and have as normal a life as I can as well. Let me return to Dr. Bilizikian again. In your experience, do patients talk about the burden of illness, of the condition and the impact that it has on their relationships and their family? Patients uh, may uh, speak about this uh, burden on their families and on their lives. Um, And I say may, uh, I think a lot of this depends upon the relationship the patient has made with uh, her physician. Uh, physicians uh, who are not familiar with hypoparathyroidism may not pick up the uh, clues that the patient is providing and and may be or seem to be rather insensitive uh, to this burden, this family burden that the patient is reporting. Again, remember, we're dealing with a rare disease. Fiona, do you have someone that you consider to be your carer? I don't have a specific carer as in... I'm a very independent person and I try. I'm stubborn. I like to be my own person. However, if my husband wasn't in my life, I wouldn't cope without him. While he's not officially my caregiver, he certainly picks up the pieces that I'm not able to do. So I suppose in that regard, I guess he is my caregiver because I wouldn't manage my day-to-day life without him. And what impact does that have on him? I guess he's his own independent person. If he wanted to go to watch the rugby on a Saturday night to the pub and I'm not well, he can't go. He's got to stay at home, mind the children, because I've got to go to bed. Let's get back to Dr. Bilizikian on this. Are there any tools that can help assess the impact of hyperpower on patients? There have been many studies of quality of life, uh, and when I say studies, I mean using um, survey instruments that are fairly accurate, although not necessarily disease-specific. One such metric is the SF-36 health survey. The survey methodology has been used by many uh, individuals, uh, that is, investigators, and published widely. And very simply put, the four physical domains and four mental health domains of that SF36 scale normalized to a 
healthy population that doesn't have hypoparathyroidism, uniformly patients with hypoparathyroidism will score below, well below average in virtually all of these eight domains. Uh, so it isn't just patients not feeling good. It isn't just patients complaining of brain fog. It isn't just patients who aren't able to work uh, full time anymore. There are clear measurable parameters that document that quality of life is compromised in hypoparathyroidism. Fiona, when you're talking to your doctor, do you regularly report the symptoms that you're living with? And how do you get into that conversation? What does it look like? I've got two main doctors in my life, my GP and my endocrinologist. With my GP, I'm the only person with hypopara, as far as I know, that attends our practice. I um, Over the years, I felt like she didn't fully maybe appreciate the debilitating effect that hypopara had on my life. And I was nearly made feel like a hypochondriac, which in turn made me stop reporting some of the symptoms that I was having, like the brain fog, the cognitive challenges, some of the cramping. The one other person in my life that I have spoken about is my endocrinologist, who is amazing. She is considered to be um, a hypopower specialist. I've been attending to her for over a year now, and she's absolutely fantastic. It's the first time in my life that I'm going to appointments and I am getting the information from the medical end because my hypopower life up until now, it's been me saying what about this, or I've read this, or what about this, can we try that, can I try this? It's lovely and reassuring for once in my life that actually the information is being given to me, not me seeking it. We've talked about the symptoms and the implications that they have for everyday life, and now we want to look at how this condition can affect people living with such a complex chronic disease over the long term. So again, for you, Dr Bilizikian, can you provide us a bit of an overview of how hypoparathyroidism might affect the body over the long term? There are long-term consequences of hypoparathyroidism, uh, as you uh, alluded to. And I think we could divide this discussion into the organ systems. One of the most important organ systems that is at risk is the kidneys. Uh, the kidneys uh, face uh, a, a burden of an abnormal calcium, and we haven't mentioned this before, but an abnormal phosphorus. Uh, as the calcium is low, the phosphorus is high in this condition. And this sets up a very difficult biochemical paradigm, namely a calcium phosphate product, that's the term we use, that leads to a tendency to deposit calcium phosphate into organ systems. Now, simply put, in the kidney, this could have the form of a kidney stone. It could have the form of just a diffuse calcification in the kidneys. And at worst, it can have the form of reduced kidney function. So we, from the point of view of, of a long-term complication of hypoparathyroidism, the kidney is certainly at risk. Uh, and I'm guessing that uh, given that the skeleton is made of calcium, 
it must have some impact on the skeletal system as well. You are absolutely right. Um, obviously, calcium is, uh, one could say calcium is the skeletal system. Over 99% of calcium in the body is in bone. Uh, and this is a very interesting discussion. Uh, and it relates to the physiological um, properties of parathyroid hormone uh, when it's present normally, and that is to help keep our bones healthy. And in an adult, that means the bones are normally uh, metabolizing. We use the word remodeling in uh, endocrinology. The bones are continually being broken down and built up. Now, I don't mean all the bones, but a small little, small snippet of the skeleton is uh, being lost and being reformed as we live and breathe. And that normal, we call it normal bone turnover or normal bone remodeling, keeps our skeletons resilient and able to withstand the stresses uh, of mechanical uh, uh, events. When there isn't any parathyroid hormone, that system breaks down. There is no remodeling or very little remodeling. The bones don't renew themselves. They become, if you will, stiff. Uh, they become brittle. And this can have an impact on the risk of fracture, although I hasten to say that because, again, this is a rare disease, Although we expect there maybe is an increased risk of fracture as a result of what I've just said, we don't have the clear data uh, because, again, the epidemiology is uncertain. What are the key challenges then for the medical community when they're faced with these patients and managing their long-term conditions? We do have key challenges, and we try to meet them as best we can. Uh, obviously, we need to um, control the blood calcium. That is paramount. In order to control the blood calcium, we have to <laughs> use a lot of calcium in the way of pills, and we obviously also have to use vitamin D in various formulations. Uh, we need to monitor these patients, not just to try to regulate their calcium in the blood, but we also want to monitor their urine calcium because, as I mentioned before, uh, the situation of a high urine calcium can be a threat to the kidneys. We would like to monitor their phosphorus because we don't want the phosphorus to be high. That would predispose to calcium phosphorus uh, deposition. These are key elements to monitoring that uh, can be a real challenge to us as practitioners. So what I'm hearing from you there is that every patient is unique, but I'm also hearing that the importance of monitoring is key in all of this, monitoring calcium levels. That's correct. That's, you have said it well. I uh, do want to, uh, as you have, emphasize that uh, monitoring is a key element to our care, staying in contact with our patients and knowing that we're on their side. Fiona, you've told us about some of the symptoms that you have on a day-to-day -day basis, but you've been living with this condition for 16 years. What about the longer-term complications that you've had? I know for myself the long-term implications that have um, affected me have been reduced kidney function, which goes hand-in-hand -hand with hypopara, 
I have bilateral cataracts in my eyes. I've had those for about five years and they're slowly deteriorating. And again, that is one of the, the long term complications of hyperpara. And I suppose that for me is the scary bit is you can't see those. You don't know where they are, short of having a full body scan, which we're not going to get regularly. Um, that's the bit that's scariest is those long-term effects and what they're going to do in the future. The future is often a a scary prospect for people with long-term conditions, but how do you personally view your future? I worry about the long-term effects of what they're going to do in the future and coupled together with other illnesses that are in the general population, I worry about how at risk I am of also developing those which will further complicate my hyperpara. But presumably you're worrying particularly here because of your family and you know how they're going to cope. Yeah, I I worry about my ability to, you know, keep my job, keep working. You know, am I going to have to take early retirement? Can I afford to take early retirement? I've thought about, you know, even where I live, I live in quite a rural location, you know, if in the event that my husband died before I did, you know, would I be able to live where I live? Will I be able to drive in the future? Will I be able to care for the children? Let's get back to Dr. Bilizikian on this. Talking about what might happen in the long term is always a very tricky subject. It's a difficult conversation. And sometimes, I guess, physicians avoid the difficult conversations. Have you any views about how these long-term conditions and complications could be discussed with patients? This is uh, a discussion about the art of medicine uh, that goes beyond the facts. Um, Some patients need to know, um, as we have discussed, what are the possible long-term complications of hypoparathyroidism. I tend not to bring up this subject in the way that uh, we've discussed today uh, because first, patients are unique. They don't all have the same natural history and it's unfair to uh, paint a picture that is bleak, although it may be bleak, it may not be. Uh, it, uh, a lot of this depends on the patient herself and uh, how uh, she thinks about the disease and what is she worried about. Some of my patients are worried about short-term. They want to get back to work. They want to stop having the pins and needles, and that's all they want to know. And I respect that. Uh, Other patients want to have a much longer view. But I also like to keep hope. You don't ever want patients to lose hope that this is an inevitable consequence of a bad disease. We're going to work together. We're going to make sure that we can keep you as well as we can, as functional as we can, and we're going to work out this together. So my message is not uh, to delude the reality, but to put it in the proper context. Hyperpara is a complex condition with a significant impact on patients' lives, both in terms of physical symptoms and the wider effects on their day-to-day lives. And we've also learned that there are long-term implications too, which may be difficult to discuss. 
I want to thank both Dr. Bilizikian and Fiona for joining me to do just that, for speaking so openly about some of the key challenges associated with the rare disease chronic hypoparathyroidism.